Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 37 for January 30, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. What is the Shia Crescent, and how does Iran's government exploit it to spread its influence and sow division across the region, from the Karun River to the Mediterranean Sea? So a Lebanese Shiite is going to become a Shiite first, a Lebanese second, and Iraqi Shiite is going to be a Shiite first, and Iraqi second. This is what Iran is doing. Iran is boosting uh, the Shia identity in uh, these countries, and it's creating kind of like empire for the Shia under its control. That was Hanin Khadar. Friedman Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute. Hanin was recently sentenced in absentia by a Lebanese military court in secret to six months in prison. Her supposed crime? Questioning the Lebanese army's sectarian biases in her 2014 speech. We'll hear from Hanin about the Shia Crescent, Iranian influence, and the loss of the Lebanon she once knew. After this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. The Washington Institute has just released the first of a new series of Middle East FAQs, videos offering brief introductions to the fundamental issues and questions facing the region. In the first video, Institute scholars Patrick Clausen, Nader Yuskawi, and Hanin Kharar tackle the Shia Crescent. What does the term mean, and how does it impact American interests and security? We'll speak today with Hanin, a veteran Lebanese journalist who's currently Friedman Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute, about Iran's growing influence over her home country. First, Let's listen to highlights from Middle East FAQs, the Shia Crescent. In recent years, Iran has taken advantage of disruptions in the Middle East to spread its influence. The 2003 invasion of Iraq, the instability resulting from the Arab Spring, the rise of Sunni extremist movements like ISIS, all enabled Iran to advance its military and political goals. They are forming a land bridge that connects Iran through Iraq, to Syria, Lebanon, to the Israeli border at Golan. This is what's called the Shia Crescent. Shias comprise just 10% of the world's Muslim population, yet they hold a massive majority in Iran. Since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, Iranian officials have sought to provide leadership for the global Shia community. After the fall of Saddam Hussein, In 2003, Iran sought to establish a strong presence in Iraq by fostering ties with both Shia-led Iraqi government and the Iraqi Shia militia groups on the ground. Since 2014, Iran-backed Shia groups have played a significant role in the fight against ISIS. Iran also seeks to cultivate its economic, cultural, and religious influence in Iraq. In Syria, Iran remains a staunch ally of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Iran has shored up the regime's ground forces, funneling regional proxies, Lebanese Hezbollah, and Iraqi Shia militias to Syria in an effort to defend the regime. Iran has also sent Shia refugees and militants from Afghanistan and Pakistan to fight in Syria as well. In Lebanon, Iran supports and has a large degree of control over Shia militant group Hezbollah. 
Since the early 1980s, Iran has fostered this Lebanese proxy as a means of perpetrating attacks against the U.S. and Israel. Hezbollah's regional clout has grown in recent years, with its intervention in places like Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Today, Hezbollah boasts battle-hardened soldiers and an arsenal of over 100,000 rockets. While Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon form the so-called core of Iran's Shia crescent in the region, Iran has also taken advantage of Shia movements elsewhere to further its regional influence and challenge Saudi, U.S., and Israeli regional dominance. Basically, the expansion of the Iranian proxy network deters attacks on Iran itself. Potential aggressors across the region know that should they attack Iran, they would likely face retaliatory attacks by its proxies. But more importantly, an expanded regional foothold affords Iran influence and prestige in the face of Western, Israeli, and Saudi power. Hanin, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So to start with, what does it mean to say that Iran is pursuing a land bridge to the Mediterranean? A land bridge is Iran's main goal in its regional operations. Iran is looking at the land bridge uh, from three perspectives. One, it's definitely much cheaper to transport weapons from Iran to Syria and Lebanon via the land bridge. Uh, but this is not the only reason. The land bridge is very important for Iran because it's also a very good plan B for transfer, uh, transporting these weapons. For example, let's, let's imagine that in the next war in Syria, the airports or one of the main airports like Damascus airports was bombed by the Israelis or whoever is going to launch uh, uh, the next war in Syria. The land bridge is definitely a very good plan B for Iran to keep trans transporting these uh, weapons to its Shia militias in, the, in Syria and to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, this is a very good plan, plan B. But at the same time, for Iran, this plan bridge is not just a physical bridge. Uh, when I asked one of the Hezbollah fighters I interview about what the land bridge means for him, he did not understand what I mean by land bridge. For him, it's not even called the land bridge. When he got it, he told me that they do not call it the land bridge. They call it the Ummah of Imam Ali. Imam Ali is very, a very symbolic figure, historical figure for the Shia. And for him, this is a very ideological bridge. It's not a physical bridge. And it's the bridge that was going to unify all the Shia in the region under the Ummah of the Shia, under the Shia empire. They see it as uh, a boost for their Shiite identity. So a Lebanese Shiite is going to become a Shiite first, a Lebanese second. An Iraqi Shiite is going to be a Shiite first, an Iraqi second. This is what Iran is doing uh, through this land bridge. It's, it's boosting, Iran is boosting uh, the Shia identity in uh, these countries, and it's creating kind of like empire for the Shia under its control. Well, that seems to take us back a little bit to uh, an, an earlier time in the Arab world, where uh, after World War II, there, there was there were several generations of of um, anti-colonial and nationalist movements uh, across the Arab world. Is is the uh, is Iranian influence in Shia communities helping drive a more sectarian sense of uh, community identity, as opposed to or even overriding nationalist senses of identity? 
Of course. The uh, the land bridge is just like a small example of what Iran wants in the region. The land bridge is just like one way of connecting these three countries. But what Iran wants for the Shia in these countries to become Shia first and the national identity of these people is uh, no longer an, a priority. Uh, because of these sectarian wars, sectarian differences, sectarian conflicts, uh, Iran is taking advantage of this, these sectarian conflicts in order to boost its control in these countries. But exactly as it happened in Lebanon, when Hezbollah was created allegedly to uh, resist Israel occupation, and this this resistance was a great tool for Iran in order to get Hezbollah to become much more powerful within its, its own constituency and eventually to take over state institutions in Lebanon. And they're ap- applying the same example of Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah to Iraq via the Hajj al-Shaabi or the Popular Mobilization Forces. And they're applying the same model also in Syria by creating their own like small Syria Hezbollah and National Defense Forces. So this is a a success story for Iran. The Lebanese Hezbollah is a success story for Iran. And this is how they are they're functioning in Iraq, Syria, and eventually in other places. So basically, what they really want, what the Iran-Iranian um, Quds Force is doing in, in uh, these countries, they want to eliminate completely any sense of these national identities in order for all these Shia in these countries to feel uh, allegiance for Iran first. And that's how they can infiltrate state institutions. Well, Iran's allies and proxies have long exercised degrees of political, economic, and military influence in Lebanon, whether in the form of the Syrian occupation for many years uh, or of Hezbollah activity going back to the 80s. Is, is anything different today, or is this just the latest step in an evolutionary process of, of expanding influence? Things have definitely changed in Lebanon because even with the Syrian hegemony in Lebanon, there was still some kind of opposition against the Syrian regime in Lebanon. And after the Syrians left, Hezbollah kind of inherited the Syrian regime in Lebanon. But there was some kind of balance between the March 14, pro-West March 14 uh, camp, political camp, and the March 8 political camp that was uh, formed by Hezbollah. This kind of balance was working very well, uh, which also allowed March 14, the anti-Hezbollah political camp, to win the two consecutive elections since 2005, parliamentary elections. And this worked, even though Hezbollah tried by force and by using violence in order to turn uh, around the results of these elections, there still was some kind of balance in Lebanon. Today, March 14 is gone. There's no one in Lebanon who is ready or capable of opposing Hezbollah. Hezbollah today is almost in control in Lebanon. And next, after the next parliamentary elections, which will take place in May, this May, uh, estimations say that Hezbollah will win at least 70% of the parliament, which means that Hezbollah for the first time will democratically win Lebanon, meaning that they will be able to change the constitution and do whatever they want in Lebanon. So this is, we are at a very, very dangerous crossroad. Do you see that as primarily a reflection of Hezbollah's growing strength and potency or a reflection more of the uh, anti-Hezbollah opposition's uh, weakness and lack of unity? It's both, actually. Hezbollah today, we have to look at Hezbollah as two Hezbollahs, and both are military Hezbollah. 
One, as a Lebanese Hezbollah, which is trying to avoid wars in Lebanon because they want Lebanon as their operation room where they can manage their regional wars. And the second part of Hezbollah is the regional Hezbollah, which is winning everywhere in the region along Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force. They're winning Syria, they're winning Iraq, they're winning their, wherever they're going, they're winning. So this is reflecting in two ways in Lebanon. One, it's boosting Hezbollah's military capabilities and giving them a much more robust regional role under Qasem Soleimani, but it's also uh, making Hezbollah facing different kind of challenges within its own constituency because of the wars, within the communities in the Arab world also who see today Hezbollah as, as an enemy more than as a resistance. So Hezbollah has, 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 play, has been playing this game differently in the region than it is in, in Lebanon. Um, of course, on the other hand, the lack of any uh, Iran and Hezbollah is winning in Syria and Iraq, not only because they are good and they have a strategy, but also because of the absence of uh, a Western uh, interference and a Western strategy in Syria or a, a strategy against Iran. We do have now a strategy. There are a lot of talks about a strategy and rhetoric about anti-Iran rhetoric in the region, but we still do not understand what it means when it comes to confronting Iran in the region. This is still yet to be uh, seen. Well, before we look at the, the, the strategic questions, on a more personal level, what does Iranian influence mean for ordinary Lebanese people? We have two diff many different uh, kinds of Lebanese people. We don't have we, we can't say uh, we cannot say the Lebanese people as like one entity, knowing how Lebanon has been to, through sectarian conflicts, civil wars, etc. The Lebanese today are very, very divided. So the pro Hezbollah people, some of them are happy with what's going on because they feel that the Shia empire is going to protect them and uh, give them a better role in, in politics. But at the same time, there are a lot of Shia who are not happy with what's going going on because they have suffered mostly during these wars in terms of uh, losing people and uh, losing access to social services. But for the rest of the Lebanese who are not part of Hezbollah's com community, including a lot of Shia, this is definitely very dangerous because uh, has, uh, Lebanon is no longer the Lebanon we know. Uh, Lebanon has always been uh, known for its freedoms, for its diversity, for its tolerance, for being the space of freedom in the region. And with Hezbollah today cracking down on, on activists and cracking down on, on journalists, including myself, uh, through the military courts and through civil courts and uh, through banning movies and banning books, Lebanon is losing the only thing that makes it uh, different and unique in the region, uh, which is freedoms. So a lot of people are very, very concerned and a lot of people are trying their best in order to speak out at least, but I don't think anyone can do anything on the Lebanese side. We know that today there's nothing in Lebanon, no one in Lebanon who can lead such an opposition. Uh, unfortunately, we can only uh, count on uh, outside pressure uh, than internal pressure. Well, if, if internal pressure is unlikely to uh, bear any fruit against uh, Hezbollah's hegemony in, in the near term, what can outsiders, what should outsiders, such as uh, states or also non-governmental actors, um, Washington, NGOs, the European Union, mm -hmm. um, what should those actors be, be doing to try to help Lebanon? 
There are different things that can be done in order to help Lebanon. One is there are a lot of assistance coming from international community to Lebanon. This assistance cannot, uh, should, should definitely come with conditions, conditions based on freedoms and reform. This will help Lebanon tremendously. Another thing is the upcoming elections in Lebanon, which means that if Hezbollah wins 70% of the parliament, there it will be very, very difficult to uh, do anything afterwards. So until May, there is still space where people can actually help the anti-Hezbollah candidates or maybe push to change the electoral law that was, uh, that's the new electoral law, uh, in order to um, to push for uh, fair elections and fair electoral law uh, in order to avoid Hezbollah control in Lebanon. On the longer on the longer term, uh, Hezbollah is getting uh, power in Lebanon, is gaining power in Lebanon, and Iran is gaining power in Lebanon because of their achievements in the region. The regional uh, victories are boosting Hezbollah in Lebanon. So before, you cannot do anything in Lebanon. You cannot change the status quo in Lebanon unless you do, uh, you change the status quo in the region, especially the Quds Force. So really, everything starts with, with Iran's uh, role in the region, Iran's hegemony in the region. And this is limited. Hezbollah's role in Lebanon will be limited. We've been speaking today with Hanin Khadar, a veteran Lebanese journalist who's written and edited for As-Safir, An-Nahar, Al-Hayat, and now Lebanon. She's currently the Friedman Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute. Hanin, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music